Welcome to the Calvary Chapel South Bay Sermon Podcast. We are a large, multi-ethnic, multi-generational church in Los Angeles, California, and we'd love to have you visit us for a service if you're in the L.A. area. Visit ccsouthbay.org to learn more about us and to find out service times. If you have any questions, shoot us an email at hello at ccsouthbay.org. Enjoy today's sermon, and we hope to see you at church soon. You turn to the book of Joshua, to chapter 1. Joshua, call to action. And as we dig into this book, uh, it is many people's favorite book in the Old Testament. It is certainly one of mine. But it contains some things that are hard for us to understand in the age of grace. And I think it's very important as we start our journey in the book of Joshua for you to remember that the church, that would be all of us who are saved by grace through faith, those that have believed on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, those who walk in grace, are not national Israel. We are not one and the same. We have never been the same. The two are not the same to this day. God has a plan for Israel that still exists, including the covenants that he made with them. And he has a plan for the church. Now, there are some similarities, but make no mistake, All of the promises that were made to Israel were not made to the church. Many of the dictates given to ancient Israel were not ever intended for the church. And if you don't understand that, then you get into a very serious malaise of difficulty with regard to the things that happened in the Old Testament, very specifically the wars that Israel was asked to fight on God's behest with people who inhabited the land. And we will dig into this subject tonight. So remember that you are a child of grace. You are not a child of the Abrahamic covenant. Unless you're here tonight and you are Jewish, and by Jewish I mean Jewish by birth and by blood, then you are not going to inherit the land of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But the Jewish people are supposed to inherit that land, and God will see to it that one day they do inherit that land. And in fact, they have returned to that land. And so this is where replacement theology becomes a big problem. It's where, uh, in essence, a view of the end times, that we have always been in the end times, literally, Instead of there is still a time that will be the very last days that is ahead of us tonight. This is where these things become very problematic. And so tonight, our introduction to the book of Joshua and just the first two verses before we move on to the text itself next week. Notice how it begins. After the death of Moses. So here we come. We know the story up to this point. The book of Exodus takes us out of Egypt into the wilderness, alive in the wilderness. The children of Israel get to the border of the promised land at Kadesh Barnea, and there are ten spies that are sent into the land. Two of them come back with a good report. Basically, eight of them say, that's not going to work out for us. There's giants there. The giants are the Canaanites. Very specifically, likely the Philistines. But as they come into the land, they look at who's already there. So there are people already in the land. So after the death of of Moses, the servant of the Lord, it came to pass that the Lord spoke to Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' assistant. So this book is about the transition between one great leader to another great leader. A leader whom you all know, and one whom probably is a little less familiar to most of us. Moses is pretty clear who Moses was. He plays a huge role in the Old Testament. And in fact, he has a covenant made with him called the Mosaic Covenant. He's the one who received the Ten Commandments of God. Uh, He is the principal author of the first five books of the Bible called the Pentateuch. Um, He's a big deal. Can you imagine filling in after the death of Moses? What shoes? Amen? 
This is the man that took the children of Israel out of the slavery of Egypt and into the wilderness and then led them through a 40-year journey in the wilderness. This was a big, huge deal. Saying, Moses, my servant, is dead. One of the hardest things for us to deal with is transition in leadership. And very often that transition comes with tragedy. Transition and tragedy is what we're trying to avoid here in this church. That is why we're doing what we're doing. And instead of my servant Jeff is dead, we want to transition between the new leader before that happens, okay? I would like that, Connie would like that, and it would be best for us as well. This is a transition that is actually mapped out for us in the Old Testament. Moses, my servant, is dead. And now, therefore, arise and go over this Jordan, you and all this people, to a land which I am giving them, the children of Israel. And so here is the introduction to this amazing book. Joshua's a story of battle. Joshua's a story about this promised land that was given to Abraham as a covenant. And to the Jewish people, it was Haaretz, Hamuftahat. It's the promised land. It's the land that is flowing with milk and honey. It was promised to the descendants of Jacob. And if you remember that Jacob and his 12 sons, ultimately known as the Israelites, uh, whose name means governed by God in English anyway, uh, were these people that were promised this land which is far bigger than what Israel occupies today. If you look at Israel, this tiny little sliver of land that, that is one-third the size of San Bernardino County, that's the whole nation of Israel today, the actual biblical mandate of land is from the river Euphrates to the river Nile. So it's a little bit larger, amen? It would include what we call the entire Middle East. It would be almost all of the Arab nations. It would include parts of Turkey. It would be all of Syria, all of Lebanon, all of modern-day Israel, all of Jordan, all of the Sinai, Saudi Arabia. It would be most of Egypt, this is a massive piece of land. And so as God pronounces this blessing upon them, as he gives them uh, this Abrahamic covenant, and it comes with a piece of dirt. Now, I don't know how many of you have ever looked at your mortgage, and you've seen that there's a legal description for the property on which your house sits. If you happen to live here in Los Angeles, your dirt is by far more valuable than your actual house, for the most part, anymore. Uh, you, you look at the land price, you look at what your house is worth, it's like, man, my dirt is worth more than my house. And to the Jewish people, the dirt was worth more than anything that was already on the dirt. It was worth more than the farms, it was worth more than the fields, it was worth more than the animals, because it had been given to them by God. And so they looked to that land of Canaan, just exactly as Exodus chapter 3 defines it, and it says there in verses 7 and 8, And the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people which are in Egypt. So this is the book of Exodus. This is early on in the book of Exodus. And this is God speaking. God says, look, I've seen what you've gone through. I know you've been making mud bricks for 400 years. And I have heard their cry by reason of their taskmasters, for I know their sorrows. And I am come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them out of that land into a good land and a large land unto a land of flowing with, that is flowing with milk and honey to the place of the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Amorites and the Perizzites and the Hivites and the Jebusites. Now notice that God says, I am doing this myself. This is a direct injunction against the people who were already in the land, and he names five of the tribes. There were actually seriously about 11 of them that were there during that time, but God names the five main ones. Canaan was the father of Sidon, the firstborn, and, and 
Of, of Canaan is the Jebusites, the Girgashites, the Orkites, the Sinites, the Aravites, the Zegesites. There's all these ite people. So anytime you see ite on the end of something, just assume that was one of the sworn enemies of Israel. Now here's the problem. They were already in the land that God promised to his people. And these people have been where? They've been wandering in the wilderness of sin. What we would call part of the modern-day Sinai Peninsula and also Saudi Arabia, very specifically the area that we call today the Anvil of the Sun and also the Jordanian Desert on the opposite side. They're, they're wandering, and we know because we're told they come from the east, that they're now on the east side of the Jordan River, which would be in modern-day Jordan and or Saudi Arabia. When you travel with us to that region of the world, you're going to see some of the most desolate places that exist on the planet. That's where they've been. Now, I don't know if you understand how ancient weapons were made, but typically bronze weapons were the, that's why we call it the Bronze Age or the later Bronze Age, and ultimately it'll move to the Iron Age. It was defined by essentially the weaponry that was used during that time. So during the Bronze Age, you have people in the Bronze Age who don't have bronze. They don't have those weapons. These people are, in essence, nomad, nomadic herders of sheep and goats. What little possessions they have would have been made out of the very few things that they could have brought with them in the Exodus. And so this was not a mighty, warring nation that was roving around waiting for a place to, to bring in their B-22 Osprey and their Apache helicopters and gunships of every version. They didn't have a navy. This was not a powerful military people. These people were essentially ranchers, if they were anything. They were unarmed, largely, with the exception of what they had captured. And so we have the story of a group of people who've been given a task for which they are ill-equipped. And the people that are in the land are already living in the Bronze Age. They do have the weapons. They do have the swords. They have chariots. They have all of the things that you, know, you would want if you were going to go to war with a group of people. And they are going to be the arch enemy of the Israelites. And so when Israel gets to the land... They are, going to have, they are going to have to have extraordinary bravery and extraordinary leadership because they are going to be facing an extraordinary army of multiple tribes that are going to withstand them to the death. This whole thing sounds like the makings for nothing but a bunch of wars. And that is, in fact, what Israel faces as they enter into the promised land. It is going to be a period of fighting for what God wants for them. And in a very similar way, though not the exact same way, we as New Testament believers end up also matched against a foe that is arrayed against us, that has tremendous warring power, for which we are often similarly ill-equipped And yet at the same time, we can be victorious because we are fighting a spiritual battle against a spiritual enemy that definitely doesn't want us to take ground for the king. And so that's where this becomes similar, but not exactly the same. And it is so important as we embark on this journey in the book of Joshua. This book is actually uh, the first book of the English, or excuse me, the sixth book of the English Old Testament. So it, it is written... Uh, really at a time when the children of Israel are just coming out of what we would call the book of Genesis. So you have the book of Genesis ends with the death of Joseph. If you remember, that's that's the final words. Actually, the very last words there in verse 26 are that the bones of Joseph are going to be carried into the promised land. So they've got a coffin, essentially. They've got a bone box, an ossuary, and in it are the bones of Joseph. They've been carting them around 
because Joseph was responsible, in essence, for them surviving in Egypt. Remember, he gave them grain. He was, he was the one who was sold into slavery. He becomes, in essence, a vizier, uh, would be like a second in command to Pharaoh. And so here's Joseph, and, and they're venerating, in essence, his bones, and they're carrying him around. And so here come his bones right to the border of the promised land. And here's the promise that's made to Abraham. That's your land. That's the land of Canaan right there. And so when they get to the border of the land, you can imagine why the spies that came back with the bad report did so. It's like, we've got a coffin, a box of bones, and they've got bronze swords. We've got people who don't eat three square meals a day. They've been farming in the best land because when you go to that region of the world, uh, the, really the only major fresh water source in that region is the Jordan River. And so if you're in that region and you already control that river and you have great walled cities like the walled city of Dan, which they're going to come to, or the city of Jericho, which they're going to come to, or all of these fortified cities, some of which would be part of the Scythopolis, which is... Uh, Beth Shean and these 10 cities that were uh, there since, in essence, the beginning, the, this, was, this was like a task that they couldn't even imagine. The end of the book of Genesis is interesting in this context. Because you can almost imagine as they're wandering around and they're carrying this bone box in Genesis fifty twenty six, and says, So Joseph, being 110 years old, died, and they embalmed him, and they put him in a coffin. That's how Genesis ends. And the very next thing, as far as the children of Israel is, and Moses also dies. And now they're going to change leaders. And so in, in Genesis, when you look at it, it begins with the creation, Right? In the beginning, God. And it ends with a coffin. It begins with the glory. And the world was without form and void. And God said, and there was. There was light. It ends with a grave. Moses, sorry, you can't go into the promised land. You misrepresented me. You're going to die here with everyone else who didn't do what I told them to do. It begins with the vastness of eternity, actually the whole of creation. When you look at the book of Genesis, where it begins is what we would say, if you're one of those people that believes in the Big Bang, it begins with the Big Bang. I believe it begins with God, and God said, and therefore it was. In a very similar way, there was nothing, then there was something. God said, let there be, and there was the vastness of eternity. And it ends with them carrying a box of bones. You, you talk about uh, something that signifies the brevity of life. One of the things, if you have the opportunity to travel to Washington, D.C., or maybe you go to the cemetery here in Los Angeles, that's our national cemetery, or down to San Diego to Fort Rosecrans, but specifically when you travel to Arlington, and you just wander amongst these incredible fields of crosses, or maybe you go and stand as I have stood at the tomb of the unknown and watch the changing of the guard. You just stand there, and it's like the brevity of life just strikes you. A vast majority of the people buried, some nearly 500,000, were dead principally. Yes, there's senators, and yes, President John F. Kennedy is laid to rest. There's all kinds of other dignitaries that are buried in Arlington. But for the most part, they're young men who went far afield and died in the service of their country. In a very same way, this book begins showing us exactly how brief life is. Yeah. Joseph was... 110, but what is that compared to eternity? 
It's nothing. Actually, it's the beginning of the story. If you think about it, the bones of Joseph are actually the beginning of the story. Now, we're not told in Joshua until the end of the book of Joshua that they're carrying those bones in. But actually, the end of the book of Joshua tells us that they brought with them the bones of of Joseph. So when you think about your own life, when you think about you, your family, it helps to look at this in that perspective. It's like there's this ebb and flow of the human condition. And in it, there's good times and there's tragedy. There's victories and there's defeats. There's things that you want to remember and there's things you don't want to remember. That's never been different. That's the human condition. And we're all going to experience that. And one day, your your family's going to be presiding over that time when you transition from this life to the next. But that life that is the next life is for eternity. This one is brief. Notice that this whole story, this entire book, is based on the name of one man, and his name is Joshua. Now, in Hebrew, it it literally means Jehovah is our help, or Jehovah is Savior, but it comes from Yahushua, and the English equivalent of that name is God is salvation. So the root is Yehoshua. And so Joshua is God is our help, God is our savior, or God is our government, or God is our salvation. It means God is our everything is a way to look at it. He's our help. He's our very present help in our time of need or difficulty or trouble. He's supposed to be our king. He's supposed to be our Lord. And while in a very real sense, the Jewish people were what we are not as America, they were a theocracy. They literally had their foundation of their government in God himself. In fact, they were given their laws by God. That's where they came from. And so they viewed God as the head. God was the top. He was the commander of their army. He he was their object of worship. He was the one to whom they appealed for judicial matters. He was the one that governed how they farmed. He was the one that governed all their relationships. He was even the one who governed what they did with what they possessed. So in a very real sense, and this is so important for us, Because if you don't understand this, you're going to start applying Old Testament principles to New Testament living, and you're going to fall flat on your face theologically. That was then. This is now. America is not, hear me very well, a theocracy. We are not a Christian nation. It would be great if we were, but we simply aren't, and we never have been. Were we founded on Christian principles? Largely, yes. Were many of our original founders believers? Yes. But are we a Christian nation? The answer to that is absolutely not. And you can see that in the way that we are governed to this day. We have many things that do not in any way, shape, or form have anything to do with the holy and a just God. You think God's okay with abortion? No. You think he's okay with slavery? Absolutely not. And yet those things were approved of by our government for a very long period of time. And so we have to be very careful about how we apply these particular things that are going to be happening in the book of Joshua. They were for the Jewish people because they actually were governed by God. He was their king, He was their ruler, he was their object of worship, he was their everything, and he was the one that told them 
to go and fight a certain group of people because that group of people were so evil that to leave that sin in place would have destroyed a nation that was governed by God. I may have just messed with some of your politics for some of you. Some of you probably have some revisionist history that's mixed in there, that things have gotten switched around in your brains. But the fact of the matter is, there are no Christian nations on earth, period. Not one, including ours. Would love that we were. Pray for it every day. Do we want godly rulers? You better believe we do rather than heathens. We want men and women who love the Lord in positions of authority in every level of government. But the fact is, we don't have that. And we have a ton of laws. Let me give you one. Thus the Lord your God says, I hate divorce. Oops. God is opposed to the proud. In fact, he hates it. So when people claim to have a greater sense of justice than God's word declares plainly, you should think one way versus another way, you are in opposition to God. You're not a Christian nation when you make laws that are plainly against the very things that God says you should be. God hates injustice of every kind. Every kind. So when we talk about what what is going on in Israel, you have to be very, very, very careful. And I'm going to give you some reasons why you can know that this is true. Because our history is fraught with Christians believing that Israel of old, ancient Israel, and the church are one and the same. What's in this name? Well, you guessed it. Ultimately, he'd be Jesus. Yehoshua is actually a transliteration. Ultimately, a New Testament Greek, Greek, Greek equivalent would, would be Jesus. That's why we say Jesus is Lord, amen? That would mean he governs your life. He's the master. He's the king. And so for every believer, that's true. But for every senator, not so much. For every person on the Supreme Court, not so much. For every president, not so much. I got asked a question this week about our form of government. government, And I, I think that a lot of Christians actually don't even understand that we are a federalist democracy. That the Constitution itself grants certain powers to the federal government. And that federal government is broken into three branches legislative, executive, and judicial. And they're supposed to be checks and balances against one another. But our form of government expressly says that all powers not granted to the federal government remain in the power of the states. So actually, the states themselves are part of the picture. Now try and ask yourself, are we actually a Christian nation? Because we have some states that are like, off the wall, including our own. We have some things that are going on in our country that you, couldn't, you could never say, well, that's of the Lord. Well, fortunately for us, the way our government works is it is by the people and for the people because it's of the people. And so that's why you get that opportunity to affect the outcome every time we have an opportunity to vote, which is why I encourage you to go vote your biblical values. Amen. Don't vote for a political party. Vote biblically so that there are godly rulers. Because if you don't, then we have less godliness instead of more godliness. But the fact of the matter is, our government is not ever going to be all godly. We wish it would. Till Jesus comes, there's going to be people who don't know Jesus. Your Bible says so, by the way. That's why Jesus makes that case. Who was Joshua? Well, he was a born leader. He was a general in the army of Moses. He was Moses' servant. 
Uh, it was Aaron and Hur who held up Moses' hands, and Joshua, Moses' servant, comes along. He was numbered amongst the 12 spies, so 2 and 10. Uh, it, it was he and Caleb who returned with that positive and yet very minority report. This man was a born leader. He was willing to say what needed to be said when it needed to be said. But he didn't talk all the time about things that didn't need to be said. So he was also humble. He was one of those guys that you probably wouldn't pick out of a crowd as a great leader. On the mountain when Moses was receiving the law, there's Joshua helping Moses with his duties. You see, he had been chosen long before Moses' death. In fact, Numbers 27 reminds us of that. And so he was hand-picked. The same God that picked Moses is the God that picked Joshua. And yet they were not the same. Joshua was a different kind of leader. He had different abilities. He had different qualities. And where Joshua was definitely a, a great military leader, and a political leader, and a spiritual leader. Uh, he, he was not the kind of guy that people would say, oh, you know, he's, he's, he's going to be the one. And we don't know much about what he said beyond what the Bible records. But it appears that he was quiet. It appears that he was unassuming. But it also appears he was a battlefield genius. He was an expert in planning and strategy. But it also appears that he was flippant at times, took things for granted. He was a capable administrator for the nation, but he also made bad decisions occasionally. The reason I'm sharing this with you, there's no such thing on this earth as a perfect leader. There isn't one. I'm not one. I can tell you that. Take my name out of the hat. I'm not a perfect leader. There are things I think I do fairly well. And there are other things it's like, mm, I could have done that better. Should have done that sooner. Should have waited on that one. Human beings are never going to be perfect leaders. One of the problems that we have in the church today is the church has taken up the consumerist mentality. And we keep looking for, for perfection in people who are incapable of being perfect. And so we get disappointed. We get upset. We start looking at it. It's like, well, you know, he did this or he said that. One of the characteristics that we're going to have to deal with until we go home to be with Jesus is we're not perfect. Amen? We're being perfected. And that's all of us. That's every leader. That's why I remind people constantly, if you don't like what a leader is doing in our country, don't condemn him. Pray for him. If you, if you want to protest and, and do those kind of things, if you do it lawfully, by all means, do what you think is right. But spend more time in prayer than you do complaining, because I doubt very seriously if you got thrust into their job, you'd do it much better. You might do it differently, but I haven't met a human being yet that doesn't have weaknesses. I haven't met one that doesn't have some strengths either. The Bible is filled with this story over and over and over again. When I point out to people that when you read the Bible, you know there's not one perfect person except Jesus in the whole Bible. Amen? There isn't one. There's not one. There's not one. Every one of the disciples, total flakes. You know what I'm saying? Think about it. All the Old Testament leaders, every one of them had some kind of issue, a temper problem, or they were, you know, they were carousing. They, you know, Moses has got a temper, and Noah's a drunk, and Solomon's a womanizer. It's just like David is like, oh, man, David. <laughs> Think about it. And yet the Bible says about David that he was a man after God's own heart. So we need to stop looking for perfection in people and start praying for perfection in people. That if there's something wrong, it would get better, that God would bless them with the realization that that's a problem and it shouldn't be done that way. 
I think we've spent way too much time believing political jargon that causes us to think that if we just complain long enough, somehow something's going to change. And it simply isn't true. It didn't work for Israel. It's not going to work for us either. Give you a few tidbits about this wonderful book. And there are things that you might see and things that you might not see. But when you look at all of the minor prophets in the Old Testament, not one of them is named in his own writing or his own book. In essence, they are all anonymous. There are people without a name, if you want to look at it that way. They, They weren't well known. There were people who were used by God. But when you think about it, it isn't like... Um, if you look at the life of Samuel, for instance, it's like we know some things about Samuel, but Samuel doesn't toot his own horn. He doesn't have his own web page. He doesn't do social media. There's nothing about him other than the fact that we see the results of Samuel's service to God. And that's as it should be with all of humankind. What should be left when we leave is what we did for Christ. What happened through our lives? Not that we got credit for it, that God gets credit for it. That's the mark of a great leader, especially in the church. It's like, who cares? It really doesn't matter what man you know, is named alongside of, this is what I did for the Lord. It's just, that's what happened for the Lord. It isn't important The vessel's not the deal. It's what's in the vessel that matters. This book was probably written in the lifetime of Samuel Samuel the prophet. And in that sense, he was the last of the judges. Samuel was the one who anointed the first two kings of Israel when they get into the land. And so very important figure. He has two books, first and second. And so this is likely a time period, if you want to look at it that, uh, probably around 1200 or so B.C. or B.C.E., whichever you prefer, before the common era or before Christ. I prefer before Christ, but if you read any scientific publication, it will say B.C.E. It is imperative that we realize that this is the beginning of the history of what we would call the, the time of the, of the Israelites in the land that God had promised them. And so this is a significant biblical event. This book is divided up really into just three sections. And there are two main parts, the conquest and the settlement. And then there's a farewell address of Joshua. And that's it. So it's really kind of a historical account of what happened when they got there. And that's why it becomes so important for us because we can see a lot of spiritual analogies in what happened to the children of Israel. We can see that you can't trust the arm of flesh. We can see that you need to be very careful about righteousness. We can see that no matter what you do, if you are not living for God, then all of your wranglings aren't going to help you all that much. There are many, many spiritual things that we'll learn in our time journeying through this book. In that sense, it provides us with a preview of things that are going to come. And the thing that is going to come, uh, including uh, some very strange people, very strange woman who's in the lineage of the Savior himself. You ever thought about that? You know, I, I have a very dear friend. He's one of our pastors here on staff. He's our CFO, our chief financial officer He is 100% Jewish. He's actually more Jewish than Jesus. If you want to look at Jesus' life, Jesus was not 100% Jewish. Because in his lineage is Rahab the harlot. She's a Canaanite. Furthermore, she was a prostitute. But she ends up in the lineage of Jesus. Showing that it's not by birthright. It's from heaven. You, know, you can be born into a family that's wonderfully blessed of the Lord, that has many, many, many generations of Christians in it, but you still need to decide this day whom you're going to serve. We learn that in Joshua. It's where it comes from. 
You got to figure that out. They're saints and ain'ts, and you got to pick which one you want to be. I will also tell you that in this book, there is a principle that has been misused, misquoted, misapplied throughout a couple of millennia, and that is the justification for a holy war or a righteous war. And we need to be very careful about the application of the things that God told the Jewish people to do when in the New Testament he clearly defines a separation of government and the church. And he does so in Romans 13. The government has been established by God. Doesn't say that everything the government necessarily does is of God. He said, here's what I'm going to do because you're going to have people living under grace and you're going to have people who are still under the death threat of the law. And you cannot hold, listen to this church, you cannot hold people who do not know the Lord to a biblical mandate or principle because they have no capacity, first, to understand it, and second, to do it. That requires the work of the Holy Spirit in their life. So when you put biblical principles on unsaved people, do you think they have any chance of succeeding in that arena? The answer is no. That's why when you go talk to somebody about something that's very clear to us as a Christian and they don't know the Lord, they're looking at you like you have a third eye in the middle of your forehead because it literally is a foreign language to them. This has been a mistake that the church has taken for a very long time. They try and apply biblical truth to an unbiblical people, to people who are not governed by God, who don't even care what God thinks. And so when you tell them, well, you need, to, you need to see it this way. When you tell somebody that doesn't know the Lord, that you know you can't sleep with your boyfriend or girlfriend, God doesn't want that, they look at you like, you're nuts. You're absolutely crazy. When you try and give a biblical reasoning for why someone should not ever entertain having an abortion, they look at you like, it's just family planning. They don't understand the intrinsic value, the biblical value of human life. They do see it as a mass of tissue. They do see it as cellular replication. They do see it as, well, I could be psychologically damaged if I have this child or if I give it up for adoption. So it's a very, very different thing for them to think on because they don't see it from God's perspective. And we have failed our country in many ways by trying to impose upon people who don't know the Lord a biblical morality. We have to show them what it means to be a Christian before we tell them what that looks like. They have no capacity to do it. Let me tell you why I know that. I know Christians that do have the Holy Spirit in them, that fail at that mandate. Non-believers don't stand a chance. Some of them are morally actually better than Christians that I know. But the fact of the matter is, biblical things, Paul said, are biblically discerned. The carnal mind cannot know them. Their value is actually assessed through the Spirit. And so you have to be talking the same language. I don't know how many of you in here are multilingual, but if you're multilingual, one of the strangest things that happens to those of us who speak a couple of languages is every once in a while you get your languages crossed while you're speaking to somebody and you think you're making sense. And then all of a sudden you realize, oh, that was Spanglish, that wasn't Spanish. That was actually, and somebody's looking at you like, what in the world are you talking about? Well, it's a foreign language to them. You think you're communicating correctly, and then you realize you used the wrong word. In a very similar way, when you're dealing with someone who doesn't know the Lord, speaking to them in biblicalese, in Christianese, in Bible, they're looking at you like, what? Huh? It's a foreign language to them. 
you got to help them understand the language before you can give them the mandates. The children of Israel had that problem when they entered the land. One of the reasons they had to fight so hard is the people that were there knew nothing of their God. The Canaanites were perfectly happy worshiping Baal. Ashtaroth was okay with them. They were fine. I'm not suggesting any of it was right, by the way. Neither am I suggesting what some of the things we do in this country are right. They're not. They're absolutely wrong. They're wrong as far as God's concerned, and we should not entertain them nor do them. But the fact of the matter is, as a believer, I hold values that an unsaved person doesn't even understand. That's the reason people look at us and they go, what are you talking about? So be careful. You see, when the children of Israel went into the land, they were under uh, what is called sherem. It's the ban. Everything in the land belonged to God. Everything. A hundred percent. The spoils of war belong to God. The people belong to God. So if God told them, you need to wipe that people out, they were following God's law and God's order, not because the killing of those people was something that they, you know, it's just like, well, yeah, we get to finally do this. No, God understood something about that people that he alone knew, and they were directly obeying a God-given command because the people were gods, their houses were gods, their farms were gods, their animal, were, everything was gods. And so when God sent them to make sure that the Amalekites didn't survive, he was doing so because he had a very specific purpose that we are not charged with as New Testament believers. There are no people, and hear this well, There are no people on the face of the earth that God has pronounced judgment on that any Christian has the right to wipe out. None. Zero. Including our enemies. That's why Romans 13 divides the government into its own separate branch. The government is the one that wages war. And you as a believer can be involved in the military. You can be a police officer. And your life can be governed by God while at the same time following the laws of the land. There's a separation of those two things in New Testament times. Because if it weren't so, then you'd be waiting around for God to tell you, yeah, we need to wipe out you know, that nation. He hasn't done that. He stopped doing that about 2,400 years ago. And he's never reinstituted. There is not one, not one case in the New Testament where God gave any New Testament believer a command to go take the life of anyone. So let's be really careful about taking those Old Testament principles and say, oh, we're fighting for righteousness. I've listened to Christians say things like, we should just wipe those people out. Really? We may have to in defense of our own lives. But to think that other people have less intrinsic value than we do is not what a New Testament believer believes. All life has value. And it should be the last resort that we turn to any type of physical violence, may have to happen. The Bible doesn't prohibit it, but it shouldn't be where the church runs to. In that sense, there are some moral problems in this book. Why is that? Probably most of you are familiar with a handful of things that have happened in our nation. Things like the founding... You know, we all, we're about to celebrate Thanksgiving. We like to, you know, our kids have been dressed up like pilgrims and all those kind of things. And by the way, that's wonderful. Praise the Lord. There is a part of that story that's true, and there's a part of that story that's completely patently false. It's not true. And here's why I say this. 
Because well before any Europeans landed on the shores of America, there were hundreds of thousands of indigenous peoples that lived here. Hundreds of thousands. And I'm going to make some people really mad right now. Probably some people watching. There'll be some comments in the call. Oh, here he goes. You need to know your history. If you were to travel to Illinois and go to the Cahokia Mounds State Park and travel around those 2,200 acres or so, you would find the remnants of a city that at around 1,100 or so, which is quite a bit before Jamestown, amen? There was a city of 20,000 plus people. The same is true for the Anastasis, the, the Pueblo uh, peoples that lived here in the Pacific, in the Southwest. There were indigenous peoples all over this country. Now, what happened? Why was it that the United States government felt that it was okay for us to fight what we call the Indian Wars and go displace all of those people and in many cases murder them and take their land? You want to know what the answer is? The Bible Do you know where they got it? The Old Testament. And in fact, it came from Papal Bulla. The popes announced that because the church was holy, it had the right to take the land, possession, and lives of anyone who was not saved. And so the whole issue of colonializing the world actually lies with the fault of the church. The church embarked upon things like the Spanish Inquisition, which also wiped out the Jewish population of Spain in Iberia. Happened here in America. Chattel slavery. The reason that there was a transatlantic slave trade was because we believed as a people, supposed to be a Christian nation, that because people were Africans, and because they didn't know the Lord, that we could do whatever we wanted. So before you dismiss that particular viewpoint, because I hear a lot of Christians doing it, it's like, well, you know, they just don't. No, probably you don't know your history. Because our history is fraught with all kinds of unbiblical things done in the name of Christ. And we've got, if we want to actually solve some of these problems, we have to acknowledge that there were some wrongs done. There has to be things said. We've got to say, you know, that wasn't right. You can't keep dismissing it like when the pilgrims landed with Plymouth that there were a bunch of Iroquois Indian waiting. It's like, wow, we've got a table spread for you. That didn't happen. It didn't happen. It didn't happen. But what did happen was you had a bunch of believers who thought they had a mandate from God because they misinterpreted books like the book of Joshua to mean that in the New Testament, well, we God told us, go wipe them out and take their stuff. That's called the doctrine of discovery. That's how the world worked for a very long time. And we are still trying to unwrap some of the damage that's been done by that type of thinking. It's one of the reasons there's so little trust for the church that is governed by guys like me who are white Anglo-Saxon Protestant. Happens to be that I'm also part Irish, so even my people were mistreated when they came here. But I think we have to look at this. You, You cannot blame God for those things. And that's what happened. Our Congress produced Bibles that were given to slaves that took out every single mention of freedom. No freedom in Christ. Here, read this one. So be careful about applying Old Testament theology that belonged only for national Israel to a New Testament believer under grace. Because you'll come up with the wrong theology. And you'll start thinking you're better than other people. And you'll start doing things that devalues the 
the value of every human being. You'll start believing things that God doesn't want us to believe. He wants us, he desires for all to be saved, amen? Every tribe and tongue and nation, every people group. I know for some of you, you're probably angry right now. It's okay, I don't care. I really don't care. Somebody's got to say this stuff. Somebody has to say it. 400 years of bondage wasn't good for Israel. It wasn't good for Africans who were brought here and sold. It wasn't good that we drove the indigenous peoples out of all the places they lived all over this country. You know why we're fighting over the Bears Ears Monument in Utah right now? Because there are over 10,000 archaeological sites in that area of the Southwest that indicate that people lived there long before Europeans came to this continent. Here's why I say this. We can be better listeners. We can be better educated. We can read real history. We can actually look at what actually happened and own it. Go, you know what? That was wrong. And do our best to right those wrongs. I don't know exactly what that's going to take. But I know this, telling people that their lives didn't matter, their ancestors didn't matter, isn't going to help because that's what the popes taught them. It's exactly how that happened. Said, well, just go take their stuff. They're heathens anyway. That's not the Jesus I know. And I'm pretty sure he's grieved over it. Why do I say that? Well, in this case, there were people in the land. They were the Canaanites. They built marvelous cities. This happens to be Tel Dan in Israel. It's a national park. It happens to be the largest fortified Canaanite city still left in existence. Uh, It has some gates that have been dated to roughly the time of Abraham himself. And so this is a, a marvelous example of why we need to pay a little better attention to our history and stop trying to impose a New Testament theology on an Old Testament setting, or vice versa. Biblical Lachish. This entrance to this walled city is pretty amazing, and actually it has double gates, and when you look at it, it is, it is fantastic. So when Joshua brings his army to the border, and they're there at Kadesh Barnea, and they look in, this is what they're seeing. Nomads seeing walled cities that actually had armies. And God says, you need to go take that land. That's the land I gave you. That city is about 165 acres. Marvelous setting. It's at the headwaters of the Jordan River. And so back during those times, there are really four basic things that you needed to have in order to really be able to stay there long term. You had to have water. That was number one. You'll die quicker from thirst than you will from hunger 100% of the time. So you had to have a source of water. Well, the River Dan, actually about 200 yards from the city of Dan, pops out of the ground. That river does not exist about 200 yards from that photo. It literally just comes straight out of the ground. You have to have a defensible city. Pretty clear that's what they had. You had to have an ability to have food and store it. Massive granaries inside of this ancient city. And you had to have high ground. This is the hill in the bottom of the valley in that particular region. It's at the end of the Hula Valley. It was the most fertile spot in all of what we would call the Jordan River Valley or the Jordan River Rift Valley, which extends all the way into Africa. And so this is the city, or one of them, along with Jericho, that they were looking at. A very defensible city, the walls that at the time that Joshua got there may have been as much as 20 to 30 feet tall. Um, the double gates allowed for you to be trapped inside. Um, these were not you know, people that didn't have any idea what they were doing. 
In the very same way, when you travel to Mesa Verde or you go to any, you could, you could just simply go to almost any of the Native American sites that we have in the Southwest and you look at the cities that they built in cliff faces. It's like, these were not unintelligent people that were wandering around with nothing better to do. Been here for a very long time. And the Canaanites were no exception to that. Not only were they well defended as far as the city, they had everything they need to withstand a siege. And the children of Israel had nothing. And so as this conquest begins, as we embark on the Jewish people going into the land, there was no diplomatic solution. There was, there was no talking to the Canaanites, say, hey, you need to give up your land. That wasn't going to happen. From their perspective, the Jewish people had no right to it. And the only claim to it was that God told them, that's your land, you need to go take it. God has not told any Christian that someone else's stuff is their stuff and they need to go take it. But he did tell Israel that. And I believe as we journey through this book, we'll see why. And so for them, there's a lot of political intrigue. There's all kinds of wonderful things that make for a great story. There's been a lot of movies made out of the book of Joshua. The first battle, the battle of Jericho is coming. The only answer then, so the children of Israel could enter that land, was war. There was no way around it. Abraham's going to be at the center of all of that. God affirms that covenant. And remember that God said, this is where it's so important for us to put this into context with everything I've said tonight. Genesis chapter 17, beginning in verse 19, down to verse 21. Then God said, no, Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. And I will establish my covenant with him for an everlasting covenant. Unconditional and everlasting. But who did he make it with? And with his descendants after him. This is for Israel, and it is for Israel alone. It does not pertain to any other people group that have ever walked the face of the earth. This covenant was made with Israel. And as for Ishmael, I have heard you, and behold, I've blessed him. And I'll make him fruitful and multiply him exceedingly. Guess whose descendants are in Canaan? Ah, Ishmael. God did bless them. He actually gave them all kinds of stuff. And he shall beget 12 princes, and I'll make him a great nation. That would be what we would normally assign to the mostly Arab nations of, of the Middle East. But my covenant I will establish with Isaac, period, whom Sarah shall bear to you at this set time next year. So Joshua records the fulfilling of the patriarchal agreement made with Abraham. I'm giving you this land. It belongs to you, but you're going to have to fight for it. It doesn't belong to the people that are in it. Oh, I'm going to bless them. They'll have many things. The prophet Isaiah actually declared that there would be a second Joshua who would restore the land and reassign its desolate inheritances there in Isaiah chapter 49. Messiah would do that. But as far as Joshua, he would fight the battles of conquest. And in many ways, Joshua is a type or a picture of Jesus. Jesus brings people into a promised rest. Jesus intercedes continually. Jesus enables us to defeat our enemies in many ways. Jesus and Joshua are similar. But Joshua was called to a unique time for a unique purpose. Unique people, a unique land. There has never been any other. There won't be any other because that is the land of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and Joshua is going to be responsible for getting them into the land. It's going to be an amazing journey, and we're going to get to 
that famous city that we all learned in Sunday school. Joshua fought the battle of Jericho. And the walls came tumbling down. That's going to be right out of the gate. But the intrigue extends well beyond that particular city. We're going to see them tackle the Amorite kings from Jerusalem. Those in Dan and Lachish. Hebron in the south. Edom in the east. Joshua 10 tells the battle for Gibeon where... God answered Joshua's request for assistance and actually extends the hours of daylight so that they can be victorious in battle. And so God's going to do some amazing things. Get ready. We're going to have a great time journeying through it. Would you join me and we'll pray. Father, we thank you for this amazing book. And I pray, Lord, that we would think correctly about our theology of the Old Testament so that we would never get caught up in seeking to fight battles on this earth that have already been won by the grace of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. We now walk in that grace. Lord, your desire is that all men be saved. And so, Lord, we pray that we'd have that perfect balance between what rightly belongs in the hands of our government and what is our individual mandate as people that love you. And so, Lord, help us to see what you want us to see as we journey through this marvelous book. We ask these things in the wonderful name of Yahushua, our God who is salvation, Jesus. Amen. Thanks for listening, and we hope you were encouraged by today's message. If you have any questions or just want to check us out, make sure to visit us at ccsouthbay.org. God bless you guys, and we'll see you next week.